0: Turn with me to Psalm 119, verse 17. And the words are also behind me on the screen. Please stand with me as we read God's word. Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, what is Psalm 119 about? If you are familiar with the Bible at all, you probably have some vague recollection about Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is long, right? It's that Psalm you dread getting to if you're reading through the Bible. Because you know, if you read it through in one sitting, you're gonna be at it for a while. And you might also know that, you know, you look at the Psalm in your Bible and you see these weird things above each section Aleph, Bait, Gimel, Dalet. And you think, what in the world is that about? And some of you know what that's about. Those are Hebrew letters. It's the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And Psalm 119 is weird in that each section, the first line in each section, um, starts with that letter. So the first section, each line starts with the Hebrew letter Aleph. Second, Bait. This section we read... Gimmel, So it's a poem. It, it's, a, it's a crafty poem. It's something that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired David to write, but, but it took thought and it, and it took creativity. And he wrote it in that way to help us memorize it, probably. But then you also know about Psalm 119 that it's about the Word of God. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know all of those things. The, psalm 119 is that long psalm that you dread coming to if you're reading through the Psalms. It's about the Bible, and it has this weird poetic thing going on. So yeah, Psalm 119 is that long psalm about the Bible. But Psalm 119 is so much more than that. In Psalm 119, we hear what a godly, humble, broken man says out loud in God's presence. We hear his joy. We hear his pleasure, we hear his desperate need, we hear his open adoration, we hear his blunt requests, his candid assertions, his deep struggles, his fiercely good intentions before God. And we, we look over his shoulder and we hear this man calling out to God. And so yes, Psalm 119 says a lot about the Bible. It says a lot about the word of God. Every verse in Psalm 119 has at least one reference to God's word or God's commandments or God's rules. Every verse has at least one reference to God's word. But every verse has at least four times words like this, I, you, Me, my, your, those kinds of words show up four times in every verse. I talk to you about what your words mean in my life. That's Psalm 119. And so if I ask you what is Psalm 119 about, you only get partial credit if you answer it's about the Bible. It's not really about the Bible at all. Or if you say it's a meditation on the importance of the word of God. This psalm is not about the topic of getting scripture into your life. And it's certainly not a meditation. It's not some academic intellectual contemplation about a topic in your mind. That's not Psalm 119. Instead, we overhear the honest words erupting when what God says gets down into you. In Psalm 119, we hear someone speaking to the God who speaks, someone who needs the God who speaks, someone who loves the God who speaks. It's not thinking about a topic. It's getting down to to serious work. It's not an exhortation to study your Bible. It's an outcry of faith. So Psalm 119 is about experiential religion, not about theoretical religion, experiential religion. It's about your experience, the experience of a man who loves the God who has spoken, and therefore he loves the words of the God who has spoken. It's not a lecture about. It's tasting it's not theory, but living experience. And there's a big difference. When I was a kid, we took a family vacation to Florida. And um, my two oldest brothers, not David, but my two older brothers um, were there. We were there as a family. And they were, they're twins, and so they were probably about 12 years old. So, um, Nicholas, you're 12 years old, right? Stand up. I want you to picture this in your mind. 12 years old, right there. All right, sit down. And uh, one of my brothers, Alan, um, somehow convinced my dad that they should go out sailing. My two 12-year-old brothers and my dad. And so this is the ocean, right? And so they go out sailing and they rent a boat about the size of this table. It's one of those sunfish boats. It doesn't have any sides. It's like a surfboard with a sail on it, you know? And they decide that they know enough to go sailing. Well, how, how does my, what makes my dad think they know enough to go sailing? Well, my brother, 12 years old, said, no, don't worry about it, Dad. I read a book about this once. <laughs> Seriously. And my dad said, okay, well, it's good enough for me. So they went out sailing in the ocean on a ironing board with a sail on it. And they almost died because they didn't know how to steer the thing. And, the, you know, the, the wind changes and it kept throwing the sail around and smacking them in the head. There's not a lot of room to move around on those things. They almost crashed into a, a, a causeway pylon. Somehow or another, they made it back. But my brother was so confident. don't worry about it, Dad. I read a book about this once. We can do this. I read a book. It's easy. Well, that's exactly how we are with the Christian life often. It's exactly how we are. My brother had a theoretical knowledge of sailing, but absolutely no practical knowledge. None. And we have all kinds of information in our heads, but when it comes to practice, we're Almost completely clueless. Or we're like this we're like students, we're like scholars, experts in the whole realm of honey. And we could talk all day about honey, we could lecture about honey, we could write papers about honey, we could hold conferences about honey, we we can talk about how honey is made. We can talk about all the, the intricate process of, of bees and pollen and, and all, all that works. We could talk about the characteristics of honey. We could talk about the molecular structure of honey. We could talk about the sugar content of honey. We could talk about the nutritional value of honey. Problem is we've never tasted it. We could go on and on about the facts concerning honey, but we've never tasted it. And so what do we know about honey? Nothing. Isn't that what we're so often like? We know all the facts about God, but have we tasted him? There's a reason why God commands us. In Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In order to know that the Lord is good, we don't just fill our minds with, ideas about the goodness of the Lord, we have to taste and see that the Lord is good. We have to experience the goodness of God. And that's why we need Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is designed to totally re-script, rewrite the inner logic motoring in your heart. Rewrite the script, rewrite the logic that pushes and pulls you, makes you do what you do. And that is not an automatic consequence of rubbing shoulders with the Bible. This is how we often approach our, our reading of the scripture or even our memorizing of the scripture. We just think that it's an automatic, you know, you just kind of rub it up against yourself and something magic happens. We have the constant tendency to miss here what God really says. To misapply what he says. To fail to apply it to the real detail of our lives where it hurts. And so you can read the Bible all day long, you can memorize it all day long, and it can have no effect because you're not using it. So yes, read your Bible, study hard, memorize it. All of that can be The means to a glorious and transforming end. But this psalm doesn't just exhort proper means, it demonstrates the radical end. Here's what happens if the Word of God really gets into you. So, this man was a man who had been changed by knowing God. His actions had been changed, his words had been changed, his loves and hates had been changed. His basic assumptions about himself and God and everything else had been changed. And that's one of the ways that we can look at this psalm. Is to think about the assumptions that the psalmist makes. In other words, what's going on in the back of his mind that makes the words of this psalm make sense? What assumptions does he have? What? are his underlying views of God and of himself and of the world that come out in the words that he writes. What's going on back in there that, that, make, that makes this the only thing he could say? What's going on? If we don't understand his assumptions, and if we're not on the same page as he is, if we don't understand not just what he says but why he says this, then we will miss huge elements of what he's saying. And so let's think about the assumptions behind these words. What is the underlying assumption behind his words in verse 17? Let's look at this one verse. He says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Think about this. What is he thinking that makes those words come out? What is he thinking that makes those words make sense? Several things. What's he thinking about himself? About all men in general, but about himself in particular. Number one, his assumption is life is a gracious gift of God. All right, This, this, this doesn't make sense unless you assume that first, right? Life is a gracious gift of God. There can't be any life of any kind apart from God's gift. Number two, the ability to keep God's word is a gracious gift of God. That's why he asks him, to make him keep it, make him able to obey it. The ability to keep God's word is a gracious gift of God. Otherwise, why ask him for this? And third, he thinks of himself as God's servant. I'm your servant. I'm yours. I'm your servant. What assumptions does he make about God? A couple Number one, God is the source of all life and ability. Number two, God is able and willing to deal bountifully with his servants. Now let's think about these assumptions. Does God's word bear out these assumptions? Are these biblical assumptions? Are these the kinds of assumptions that you get by reading Scripture? Does life depend on God? That's an easy one. Of course it does. We all know this. Even people who do not acknowledge God as their God will acknowledge, yeah, there there is a God and life depends on him somehow. And this is the testimony of scripture all over the place. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. That's how it all started. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He became a living creature. Life came from God. Acts 17.25, the Apostle Paul says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Life is the gracious gift of God. Every every kind of life is is the gracious gift of God. Isaiah 55.3, incline your ear, God says, and come to me here that your soul may live. Not just your body, but your soul. Life is a gift of God. But what about this other assumption about himself in verse 17? The first assumption is life is a gift of God and most Americans will somehow acknowledge that, Right? Somewhere back there, they kind of understand that. But the other assumption about himself is one that we hate. Not only do we all need God to give us life itself, we also need God to give us the ability to obey him. We hate that one. Because we're all about our ability, our strength, our our free will. And so, no, we don't like this one. But is it the teaching of the Bible? Does the Bible teach that we also need God to give us the ability to obey him, that we cannot obey him unless God gives us the ability to do it? Is that the teaching of the Bible? Well, listen to the words of Jesus in the book of John. Just listen to these. John 5, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe? Or John six forty four: no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. Or John six sixty it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can. Or the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, hear the language, the words that God uses here. Any first grader should be able to hear the difference the kind of what, the words that he's using here. Because every first grader knows that if you raise your hand and you say to the teacher, teacher, can I go to the bathroom? The teacher will always say, yes, but you may not. Right? Because can is a question of what? Ability. Well, of course, I mean, I hope you're able to go to the bathroom. You're able to, yeah. But you may not. Sit down. Wait till recess. Because that's a word, that's the question of permission. So what are the words that Jesus uses here? Permission or ability? It's ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. No one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. He's not able to. The natural man is not able to understand the things of God. This is what scripture says over and over again. He talks about ability. Yes, the assumptions behind Psalm 119.17 are very biblical. We are dependent on God for life and breath and everything else. And we are dependent on God for our ability to believe. We're dependent on God for our ability to come to him. We're dependent on God for our ability to understand him. We're dependent on God for our ability to obey him. That's why he says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. You have to help me. You have to help me. I can't do it. I can't even live. Let alone obey you. Now, is that the way you think of yourself? In your experience, in in the details, in the routine of your life, in the practical ins and outs of your days, as you go through the details of your life, if you do all the stuff that you have to do every day and every night, do you think of yourself as constantly dependent on God? Is that in the front of your mind? Is it even in the back of your mind? Is it anywhere in your mind? I am constantly dependent on God. Do you see everything as a mercy of God? Or do you take all of that stuff for granted? Are you conscious of your weakness? There are millions of everyday ways that you and I operate without any reference to God. Why? Because functional atheism is our most natural state of mind, isn't it? Functional atheism, godlessness, as if there is no God. That's the rut, that's the default, that's what we will always slide into without work, without constant work. Default, slipping into neutral, is functional atheism. how often do we operate without any sense of our desperate need for daily mercies from God? We just pray the Lord's Prayer. How often do we have any sense that God has to give me my daily bread? Or I'm done. We operate without any sense of our desperate need. And therefore... We have no impulse to call on him. We don't, we don't think about calling on him because we don't think we need him. We have no love for him, dominating our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength because after all, we're just floating through life. We're just fighting through life. We're just grinding through life. Whatever you do through life, it's just you And the guy in traffic or the crying baby or the bill collector or whatever. It's just, that's all there is to it. You're on your own. Isn't that how we almost always think? Isn't that how we almost always practically function? It's our normal assumption. Maybe not when we're in a theological debate, you know, then we, then we think, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And we get out of the rut and we spit out the right answers. But certainly when we're driving down the street, paying our bills, disciplining our kids, speaking with our husbands or wives about our day, God simply does not enter into the equation and we're self-sufficient, self-satisfied, self-confident, It's exactly what the Apostle James addresses in James chapter 4. He's talking to us. This is what he says, James four thirteen. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say... If the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, I'll get out of bed in the morning and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. If you can think about even the the, the plans of your day without reference to God, you're being evil. So Psalm 119.17 rewires our assumptions about ourselves. I am utterly dependent on God for my life. I am utterly dependent on God for my ability to know him. I am utterly dependent on God for my ability to obey him. I am utterly dependent on God for my ability to keep his word. I'm utterly dependent on God for everything. Now, what are his assumptions about God? Verse 17 says, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. What's behind that that makes that make sense? Well, here's the underlying assumptions about God here. Number one, God is the source of life and ability. We've, we've already looked at that. Number two, God is able and willing to deal bountifully with his servants. That's the one that we have trouble with. Because even if we will acknowledge, yes, God is the source of my life. Yes, I can't do anything without him. Yes, I acknowledge that. Do you really believe and live as if God is both able and willing to deal bountifully with you? Or do you assume that yes, he's able, I have to say he's able, but no, he's not willing. At least not with me. I know he's willing with all those other people out there, but I know he's not willing to deal bountifully with me. I know that, I know that we think this. I think it. I know that many of you do too. So in other words, do you think of God as a stingy, tight-fisted, grudging Miser who is distant and cold and uninterested and who only gives gifts half-heartedly and reluctantly and under compulsion? Or do you have the psalmist view of God? Does your working view of God, your idea of God that's always playing in the background, your, that, that, basic assumption that you have about God, the operating system view of God, the the thing that's always running in the background and making everything work. Does your view of God, the assumptions about God that actually shape the way you live and think and feel, does your working view of God look like Ebenezer Scrooge, who, oh yes, he's rich, but he's not very interested in giving anything to you. He's not interested in drawing near to you. He's not interested in dealing bountifully with you. Or do you have the the psalmist view of God, David's view of God? Oh God, deal bountifully with me. I'm gonna be as so bold as to say to you, God, deal bountifully with me. You are no miser. You are not stingy. You are filled with free, abundant grace for me. I expect you to be good to me, not because I'm good. I'm not demanding you to be good to me because I'm good. I'm not good, but I expect you to be good to me because you are good. Is that your view of God? If that's not your view of God, then you do not know the God of the Bible. Whatever God you're worshiping, you're not worshiping the real one. Listen to these words. Just listen. Psalm 5, verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Or Psalm 13, 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Or Psalm 31, 19, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Or Psalm 36, 8, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Or Psalm 116, 7, return, O my soul, to your rest for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now does that sound anything like the stingy, miserly, mean, tight-fisted God that you assume? And this is the Old Testament, you know? So what's the New Testament say? Well, more of the same. Because the Apostle Paul especially loved to speak of God as rich in goodness and rich in grace. Hear these words. Let them soak into you. Let them change the way you think. Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift, free gift of God. Ephesians 1 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Riches. Ephesians 2.7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches. Ephesians 3.8, to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or Ephesians 3.14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Philippians 4:19 And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1:27 To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. And I wonder James says, in James 1, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Don't let anyone lie to you. Don't let Satan lie to you. Don't lie to yourself. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The God that is, the real God, the only God, deals bountifully with his servants. He is able and he is willing. So be honest with yourself. Is that your operational view of God? Do you think you're being humble when you, th- when you think that God's not willing to be good to you? Do you think you're being humble when you stick your fingers in your ears and run the opposite direction of Scripture? You think that's humility? How would you know if this is your view of God? How would you know if you really did have this this assumption God is able and willing to deal bountifully with His servants and it's sunken deep down into your bones? How would you know? Well, how do you pray? How do you pray? Do your prayers reveal this assumption about God? God is the kind of God who will deal bountifully with his servants. And therefore, ask, seek, knock. What do you do when you know you've sinned? What do you do when you know you've sinned? Here are your two options. The I I believe God is a miserly, stingy, tight fisted, reluctant God. Okay? That version, what does it do? And you know you've sinned. Where do you go? You run. You run. Away from him. Because you do not expect him to be kind. You do not expect him to be patient. You do not expect him to be merciful. You don't expect him to be waiting for you, looking to come back and running out to greet you and putting on the robe and putting on the ring and putting on the party. You don't expect that. That will never happen in your mind. And so you run the other way until you're good enough to come back. What would it look like if you have the biblical assumption of God when you sin? Yes, I've sinned. It's awful. How can I How can I sin against this, this good and holy God? How can I sin against His grace? How can I abuse this grace like this? How can I dishonor Him? I've got to go to Him. I've got to go to Him. I've got to run to Him. Because I know what He's like. I know that He's filled with kindness and compassion and tender mercy and and he, he, will, he will take me. And he even commands me to come to him boldly. Boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy. I've sinned. I need mercy and grace to help me. I need, to, I need his grace to help me to stop sinning. I'll run to him. Which is it for you? What do you do when you are tempted? When those temptations come on you that are those, those common persistent temptations that come on you and they've come on you for years and you've trained yourself to think this is hopeless there's nothing I can do about this there's nothing God wants to do about this but scripture says there's no temptation taking you but what's common to man and God is faithful who will with the temptation provide what a way of escape but you don't think about that do you because that's not your god your god isn't that isn't faithful your god isn't good at well, least not to you so it's hopeless go ahead and sin how do you respond when trouble comes Yeah, that's what I that's what I expected. God has it out for me. He I knew I knew it was going to come sooner or later because I know what God is really like. And here it happened. That's what I expected. Or There's a God in heaven who is good. He is my father. He's wise. He's in control of this. He is disciplining me. Yes, he's disciplining me. But what does scripture say? He disciplines every son that he what? Receives. Every son that he loves. Scourges every son that he receives. So this, that's what's going on here. That's, what's going, that's how I have to think about this. There's a God in heaven who's revealed himself in the Bible. He's told me what he is like. I'm not allowed to make up a different God. This is the God of, of heaven. And here's what he's doing with me. And yes, it hurts. It's awful. But I know what's going on. I know what's going on. So on the other hand, this is wonderful. This is proof to me that God loves me. Not that he hates me, but that he loves me. How do you treat the people closest to you? How do you treat the people closest to you? Because we usually deal with people the way we think God deals with us. How do you deal with the people who are closest to you? How do you treat the people in your world? You can see what you really think God is like by stepping kind of out of yourself, looking at yourself, and look at yourself. How do I treat the people around me? If I was taking a video of myself, what would it look like? And what would that tell me about what I think about God? Do you insist that everyone performs and meets your standards and jumps through your hoops before you will bless them? Do you always hold the rules over everybody's head and and force them to, to do exactly what you want them to do or else? Are you always critical of everyone? Are you bitter and unable to forgive people when they sin against you? Do you nurse the grudge scripture warns us about the root of bitterness do you plant the root of bitterness do you put it in the in the greenhouse do you fertilize it and check on it every day and make sure it's growing well do you hold back your affection from your wife, from your husband, from your kids until they prove themselves to you. your Santa Claus, always making a list and checking it twice. You've got your lists. If any of you, if any of that describes you, then that, that is how you think God is. That's how you think God is. You're operating assumptions will have everything to do with your everyday life. Your basic assumption about God will come out in the way we treat people. It'll come out in the way we pray. It'll come out in the way we respond when we sin. It'll come out in the way we respond when we're sinned against. And the way we respond to trials and temptations and hardships. No matter what we say we believe, we will act on what we really believe. If you know and genuinely feel and experience that God relates to you out of rich and abundant and free goodness, then that'll change everything. Think of how that would change the relationships with the people that are closest to you. You would deal with people the way God dealt with us. You would be able to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving because we know that God in Christ forgave us. We would be able to walk in love because we know that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We would be able to bear with others, to be patient with others because we know that God bears with us. We would be able to accept others because we know that God has accepted us. That's what it would look like. If you have the assumptions of verse 17, I was going to go into verse 18, but we don't have time. Let me read the rest of this passage to you. Verse 18. Open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. Open my eyes, make me see wonderful things. I know they're there, make me see them. I'm a stranger in the earth, don't hide your commandments from me. What would happen to me if you hid your commandments from me? I would die, there's nothing left here for me. I'm a stranger, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sojourner, I'm a wanderer on the earth. Don't hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. So that's, that's, that's our first thought when we wake up in the morning, right? Right? My soul is crushed with longing for your ordinances at all times. I can't wait. It's not us, is it? It can be. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Oh God, make me not wander from your commandments. I don't want to be like that. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies, even though princes sit and talk against me. Your servant meditates on your statutes. I don't care what they say. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Do you hear the spirit behind those words? Do you hear the attitude behind those words? Do you have a taste for any of that? Do you do you read those words and you say Oh man, it's it's not me. I mean maybe sorta but no, nah, not really. But man, I wish it was. I wish that was me. Do you have a taste for these things? Do you want them? If you don't, if this is just whatever, then you do not have the Holy Spirit of God. But if you can read this and and see, yeah, that's not me, but man, do I want it. The only explanation for that is you have the Holy Spirit of God. Do you mourn the fact that you're so pitiful in your living experience of these things? If you do, then you should be filled with hope because that sense of desire and longing and inadequacy and weakness and lacking can only be the work of God's spirit in you. You would be blind and dead and calloused and hard if God wasn't working in you. So keep trusting him keep seeking him. Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's God. Turn back to him. Come to him. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come to him. Let's pray.